Nehemiah chapter 12, starting at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them and the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgivings to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedaiah of the Levites, and of their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw Judah, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? 
Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favour, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak in the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashab the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. The second reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, reading chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Heavenly God, uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, give you thanks for uh, bringing us together as a church today. We thank you for the many new friends that you brought amongst us as well, both here in, in church as well as downstairs in Kids Church. We thank you for new beginnings um, as we uh, begin a new school year, as we begin another year together as church. Um, we do thank you that what ties us together, what uh, gives us life and hope is your word. Uh, and we pray that today as we look at this passage, which is seemingly a very difficult passage to understand and to 
to wonder how it applies to us today. We pray that you'll give us uh, insight into why Nehemiah wrote these words, uh, what it's talking about, and why it matters to us today. Please open our minds, but especially open our hearts to be able to see the reality of our spiritual condition and to be able to see our need for Jesus and in knowing what Jesus has done for us, that we might have great hope and that we might leave here today rejoicing in the hope that we have in Him. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, all things have a tendency toward, uh, to move from order to disorder, right? All things have a tendency to move from order to disorder. That's like the simplistic uh, definition of entropy, right? If you're a science person, uh, that's not technically what entropy means, but it's a simplistic definition, right? The tendency for something to move from order to disorder. Um, everything in this world goes through a gradual, certain decline into disorder. So we experience this every day. Uh, every day I, I, I vacuum and I mop the floor. Completely futile, right? Because by, by the first second of the next day, uh, the first hour of the kids being awake, I see crumbs everywhere and I see messiness uh, everywhere, right? Uh, it's futile to make your bed because when you make your bed, uh, and, and the next thing you know, you lie in it and it's all messy again. Right, you, you mow the grass, and then it grows again. And you cut your hair. I cut my hair a couple of days ago. And within a couple of weeks, within four weeks, I've got to cut it again, right? Uh, messiness, dirtiness, deterioration, decay, they're inevitable. There's entropy, right, in the physical world. Now, it would also seem that there's entropy in the spiritual world as well. As we read the scriptures, as we look into the history of humanity, perhaps even as we look into our own lives, we notice this tendency for all things to move from order to disorder, from holiness, from goodness, to impurity and sin. And we can uh, sometimes wonder, is spiritual entropy the way that it always will be? All right? Will there always be a decline every time we, we make it a progress, an improvement, that we find that we fail and that we fall again? Certainly it seems to be the case as we come to the end of this book that we've been looking at for the last year in Nehemiah. Now, let's look at this uh, familiar timeline one more time. So if you've been around, you'll see this timeline, so don't worry about looking at it too much. Uh, but Nehemiah kind of sits here, doesn't it? It's a time uh, of Israel's history, which was supposed to be a time uh, a great, uh, of great optimism, right? a time of great optimism, because they experienced in their past a long history of sin and rejection of God that had led the people of God to be ripped out of the promised land and exiled. Right, so that's where that little split happens there. The northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria, and the southern kingdom, Judah, was exiled to Babylon. But the people of God clung on right, to the huge and the wonderful promises of reversal that God had given them decades and centuries ago. And the promise was that uh, there would be a, a rescue from exile, uh, that the temple that was destroyed would be restored, and a city and its walls rebuilt, as well as that there will be a spiritual renewal of the people's lives, right? All this long history of sin and rebellion, there will be a spiritual renewal that they would experience. If you have been reading through the book of Ezra, which is connected with Nehemiah, and as we've been looking at Nehemiah over the last year, we would see that in this time of history that this has happened, right? Rescue has happened. They've been brought back from Babylon to Jerusalem. The temple has been restored in Ezra, and the city and its walls have been rebuilt in Nehemiah. However, when it came to their spiritual life, 
it wasn't great, was it? It wasn't great. In fact, it was pretty terrible. We will see, especially in our passage today, that nothing had changed at all. Spiritual entropy set in again. This tendency to move from order to disorder, from holiness to sin. It is still present. It is still frustratingly and hopelessly present. And we're right to ask, is spiritual renewal always doomed to failure? Right? Is the hope of spiritual renewal always doomed to failure? Now, reading Nehemiah 13 today, I think should grieve us deeply. When we come to understand, especially chapter 13, as I'll explain over the next little while, it should cause you to want to shake your head in disbelief. All right? you, want to, you want to slap these guys on the back of the head wondering, what, why are you guys going back into these things again? After all, God, all that God has done for you. As much as we are frustrated and angry at the people of God, treating God this way in Nehemiah 13, we also maybe think to ourselves, are we any different? Are we, we cause to ask, are we any different? Now, why do we, why do you, and why do I keep falling back into old sins? Like, will we never learn from our mistakes? Will we never change from our sinful ways and rebellion against God? Right? What hope do we have that spiritual entropy is not the foregone conclusion? So let's dive in, right? The passage starts off in the end of chapter 12 very promisingly, right? Chapter 12, verse 44 begins with, on that day. And if you were to do the work of context and you go back and read a few verses back, it's the day, the great day of celebration that we looked at last week, that Richard preached on. On the day that the two choirs, they march one east, one west, uh, ending up at the great temple filled with celebration and rejoicing, right? This is where we pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 44. Now, on that day, they did two things, right? the people of God did two things to express their devotion to God and His Word. Right? The first is seen in their obedience to the instructions to provide for the temple servants. So there are a list of names there, the Levites, the, uh, the singers and all that, they're the temple servants. Now, back in chapter 10, and I won't read it, you can write it down if you want to reference it later on. Back in chapter 10, verse 32 to 39, all of Israel had come together to make a vow to fulfill their obligations to provide for the temple servants, right? They, they, you want to read it later on? They made all these vows that, yes, we will provide for these guys who are serving us in the temple. And here we see them acting on that promise. So have a look. I'm going to be reading from chapter 12, verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes. Together into them, the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the, to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God, God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. <clears throat> so, you see a bunch of people there. They're the ones who serve at the temple. And we see the Israelites, right, fulfill the obligations with joy even, right? With rejoicing and singing, they brought their contributions to support the temple workers. Now, clearly, this wasn't just a legalistic, simply kind of going through the motions uh, kind of thing. Uh, they did something that they did from their hearts. And it wasn't just a once-off thing either, was it? Have a look at verse 47 in your Bibles. You may not understand what's going on there, but basically all Israel, right, over a long period of time, from the time of Zerubbabel, which is a, the priest at the beginning of Ezra, all the way to here, 
right, in the time of Nehemiah, were strongly motivated to keep the law and provide for those who served at the temple. Right? So that's one great evidence for how well they're going here. But there's more, right? There's more. Chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, the next point. On that day, we get that same, same, same phrase, on that day, they read from the book of Moses, and there they were reminded of the need for a holy separation from foreigners. Now, once again, we find this emphasis on holy separation earlier in Nehemiah. So you'll see it in Nehemiah chapter 9, you'll see it in chapter 10, verse 28. And I'll read this one out, right? Chapter 10, verse 28, 31. So uh, have a look in your Bibles. Actually, no, I have it on screen here. Yeah, here we go. It's probably too small. All right. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now you're reading chapter 10 and you're kind of wondering what's going on here, right? Uh, were Israel instructed to be racist? Right? That's what it is. It's about separation because of being racist. No, if you understand the Old Testament and the reasons for the separation from the, from the nations, from the foreigners, it was not a racism issue. It was a holiness issue. Right? It was about being a different kind of people set apart to belong to God. Those who have uh, submitted themselves to being cleansed right, by the sacrificial uh, system that God had instituted for people who trusted that God was the God of the universe and that they would uh, submit to the way God would cleanse them. So they were set apart as a special holy people and they were cleansed in a special way. So it's a holiness issue, not a racism issue, but being different to the rest of the world who did not believe in God. It was also, I think secondly, an influence issue. You see, there was a very real threat right, of being led astray constantly by the foreign nations to worship their gods Whereas God told Israel, I'm the, the one true God. And so you have to separate yourselves because of the influence right, that the foreign nations would have to lead them astray to worship foreign gods and to live in a way that displeased God in godless ways. So it's about holiness and, and influence. It's not about racism. Now, another reason is given here, actually. Another specific reason is given here in verses 1 to 2, right? 13, 1 to 2. There's a mention of two particular people groups who are banned from the temple and entering the assembly of God. So if you look there, they are the Ammonites and the Moabites. Um, and it's because these two groups have caused particular and great harm to Israel in their history. Now, even now, in the time of Nehemiah, if you've been following along, you would know this guy called Tobiah the Ammonite. He's an important guy. There's a lot of names. I won't explain all who they are, but Tobiah the Ammonite, I should explain, right? I must explain. Because back in the earlier part of Nehemiah, in chapter 2 and 4, when they were rebuilding the temple walls, sorry, the city walls, this guy was the guy who mocked and taunted the people of God. Right? This Tobiah from Ammon. Now, having heard the word of God in verse 3, 
we're told that the people respond and devoted themselves to holiness. Right? They, they understood right, the, the need to be separated, and they understood the dangers of the Ammonites uh, and the Moabites, especially because of this guy Tobiah, and we'll meet him a bit later on. And so they respond. And so far, these seven verses, from the end of chapter 12 to the beginning of chapter 13, sound so promising. But, it's always a but, isn't it? But just as things start to look up, things come crashing down again. Spiritual entropy, the ever-present tendency to dive back down uh, into sin and disobedience, rears its ugly head. In verse 6, we are told that there was a time when Nehemiah was absent. So he'd been there for some years to oversee the rebuilding of the city and the wall, but then he'd gone home, right? Not home, but he'd gone back to where he came from, Persia. Uh, He was there uh, back to the king's side in Babylon or in Persia, just as he had promised, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 6, uh, for, for the king to have released Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem, he promised to come back. And so he went back to the king. We're not sure how long, probably long enough, uh, for children to be born uh, that he had never met before, right? Probably 10, 12 years or more. Now look at what Eliashib, the priest, who was in charge of the temple, did while Nehemiah was gone, right? This is chapter 4, uh, 13, verse 4 to 14. We meet this guy, Eliashib, the priest, uh, and what he had done was he, um, there were these rooms, remember? There were, was, there were chambers that stored the provisions set aside for the temple servants. Um, and this was the temple servants' stipend. It was their support that enabled them to serve full-time. Right? Just as you guys uh, uh, give money to the church so that you can uh, allow for, for Steve, Richard, and myself uh, to work for the church. A similar thing, right? This is their stipend, their support. But Elisheb, he cleared out all these provisions, he cleared out all the support, and he gave them to be used by who? You read that? His relative, Tobiah the Ammonite. Are you connecting here? This is the enemy. This is the unclean fellow who had been mocking and cursing the people of God. Oh, the desecration of the holy chambers in the temple. Now, there's all kinds of wrongs here, really, when you think about it. Uh, Firstly, how, how did a Jewish priest... Uh, come to be related to Tobiah the Ammonite. I remember they're related, the passage tells us. Obviously, a mixed marriage had happened somewhere. How did Tobiah, one of the two most prominent individual enemies of God's people in Nehemiah's time, get married into Israel? Why in the world would a priest of God, remember a priest serves in the temple, one of the, the big wigs in the temple, one of the pastors, so to speak, allow this unholy, anti-Israel pagan, a special room in God's temple. And even worse, and more obviously, why would he clear out the provisions? It left the temple servants with nothing, right? Getting rid of their ministry support. Why would he do that? Now, with no support, look down at verse 10. These temple servants had no choice but to flee back to their fields to work and feed themselves. Now, as a as a gospel worker, I guess I really feel for them deeply. Uh, this one personally, like, oh, man, I feel the... I, I got a bit angry while reading this, right? They want them to serve at the temple, but then they get rid of all their support. Now, when Nehemiah found out about this, he was absolutely furious, wasn't he? And rightly so. The temple of God, Nehemiah told, told, tells us, had been forsaken. So if you don't understand anything else that was going on in this passage, this is the verse, right? The temple had been forsaken. The servants of God and the the people had been forsaken. 
This is a desecration, right? A making unholy of a holy place, of a holy service. And so the minute Nehemiah returned, he charged into the, temp- the chambers and he tossed out right, all of Tobias' stuff. He gave orders to get the Dettol out, right? To disinfect right, the entire place. Right? Dettol by the gallons, right? Clean all the places that Tobias had been. This pagan who had desecrated the temple and its chambers. Get rid of every last molecule of, of filth that had been left behind. And then he restored the chambers to its proper use, and he brought the temple servants back. And then he appointed reliable people to make sure that this would never happen again, that the temple servants would always be provided for. Now, if that was the only bad thing happening in those years, that would have been bad enough. But no, there's more, right? There's more. In verses 15 to 22, the people were now desecrating the Holy Sabbath. So the Holy Sabbath is when God set aside one day in seven as a holy day, to rest and not work, right? One day a week, which was to be special to God. Now, why is that? Why would they have one day of rest? Well, it's a day to remember that God rested when he created the world on the seventh day. And it was a day to not work, to show the people's faith and trust that God would provide. And so they were to not work and trust God that he's a God who provides. But back in those days, the Sabbath was desecrated. All kinds of work was being done by the Israelites themselves, right? All sorts of trading was happening. And they made a promise, remember, back in chapter 10, verse 31, that they would not buy from foreigners on this holy day. They could buy from them the other six days of the week. But on this special holy day, they were not to trade, right, with the foreigners. But that promise is now totally broken. Now, did you know that Sunday trading was not allowed in Brisbane until quite recently? And I use recently there in, uh, you know, depending on your context of how old or young you are. Uh, now, for centuries of Australian history, trade laws right, were in place to protect workers by prohibiting work on Sundays. Now, who can remember when that changed? Who can remember the month and the, the year? Okay, maybe the year. Right. Open Sundays. Any guesses? 99? Close, close, but not quite, right? 1st of July, 2002, right? The act was put in place in 2001, but it was enacted uh, in 2002. That's pretty recent to me. That's less than half my life away, (laughs) but perhaps not for some of you here. Although this is the older congregation, so maybe you don't feel like it's that long ago either. Now, if you grew up in Brisbane um, in the last 20 years, and you're under the age of maybe 25, when you can't remember a thing about 2002, uh, or you grew up in Asia, you'd be like, Sunday trading? Like, that's just normal, isn't it? Um, but it really did feel weird for me as a 24-year-old to be going to the shops and seeing everything open at Indrapilly Shopping Town, which is what it was called uh, back in the day. But after a while, you got used to it, didn't you? And then you expected it. And it quickly became a part of life. Right? Protection of workers became a long-forgotten relic of the past, Profit for businesses and convenience for the consumer is what won the day. But for Israel, though, it was much more than just an issue of human care or commerce or convenience. For Israel, it was a desecration of something holy to God and holy to the people. And so Nehemiah confronted the nobles, right, who were probably the business owners in chapter 13, verse 7. Have a listen, right? What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? 
And did not our God bring all this disaster on us on this day, on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. See, they were repeating the same mistakes from the past. The same kind of disregard and disobedience to God's law was what led the ancestors to be judged and to be exiled. And here they were, spiritual entropy setting in again, returning to all ways and bringing upon themselves the same consequences of God's wrath and judgment upon themselves. And so once again, Nehemiah springs into action because he couldn't let this continue. He locked up the city gates before the Sabbath day began. He kept it shut for the entire Sabbath day. He chased the traders who were hanging around the outside, hoping that people would sneak out to buy stuff from them. He went into action to protect this holiness of the people. Sadly, we're not done yet because uh, as any good sermon would have, it has three points. So there's a third desecration that shows the spiritual demise of Israel, this time in verses 23 to 29. And we know this because it gives us another, in those days, right? In those days, verse 23, one more desecration. And here we return once again to an area of unholiness that we're, too, they're all too familiar, uh, we're all too familiar with. Uh, already back at the end of Ezra, remember if you read Ezra and Nehemiah together, which you should, you would be familiar with the end of Ezra, uh, how they failed to be, to be obedient to God's instruction for purity in the area of marriage. Uh, back in chapter 10, as we read before, we've already seen uh, that Israel makes solemn promises, uh, a wholehearted promise, it would seem, to not marry foreign wives and husbands. But here we are again, right? Spiritual entropy returning to old ways. The, Jewish, uh, the Jews married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And remember, the issue isn't about racism, it's about holiness. And here, especially, it's about influence. Have a look at verse 24, right? The children of these marriages, half could no longer speak the language of Judah. Right? The foreign influence was greater than the Jewish one. Right? They could no longer speak the language of Judah. They, they spoke the language of the nations. Now, what's so bad about not being able to speak the language of the Jews? To not be able to understand the language of the Jews? Well, it's bad, real bad, because then how could you hear, understand, and respond to the word of God, which was written in the language of the Jews? Now, many years ago, I knew a Christian couple. Uh, the husband was from, I think, uh, somewhere in Europe, I think Belgium, maybe. And the wife was a migrant from Hong Kong who had grown up in Australia, who was pretty much an ABC. Uh, and they had a daughter, right, who was born in Australia. And from birth, this, uh, this, go- this girl was raised by the wife's parents who could only speak Canto, right, because they're from Can- Hong Kong. Uh, and I'm pretty sure they weren't Christians. So from Monday to Friday, or I think it was Monday to fr- Saturday lunchtime, uh, both parents would le- work pretty long hours. And from Monday to Friday, the child only heard and only spoke Cantonese. Right, from Monday to Friday, the child absorbed her grandparents' values and responded only to their instruction and discipline. Now, I saw this family on Sundays, and we would have, um, we have, we have, we have a cell group at like 8.30 in the morning, and we had church at 10.30, it was crazy. Anyway, we, I would see them on Sundays, and it was very difficult to watch, to be honest, very difficult to watch. Uh, the husband they couldn't communicate uh, to his wife's parents, because he couldn't speak Cantonese. Uh, the wife could barely speak Cantonese herself because, you know, ABC is hopeless, right? They can't 
language. Anyway, sorry, that's not a comment that was in here. Uh, but yeah, she couldn't speak Cantonese much either. But worst of all, they couldn't relate to their daughter. They couldn't relate to their daughter, right? They couldn't raise her the way that they wanted. They couldn't get her on board with what they valued because she only spoke the language of her grandparents. She only responded to their discipline and to their instruction, and she held on to their values. Now, this situation is loaded with all sorts of implications, right? It is it's a difficult situation uh, all around. But one point is clear, isn't it? Those closest to us have the greatest influence. Your primary caregiver would have the greatest influence of those under their care. And God gave instructions about marriage for the people of Israel. These dangers weren't theoretical. Right? They were very real in terms of being able to be raised as the people of God. Their wisest King Solomon fell into ruin because he failed to obey this instruction about marriage. Their history of disregarding purity in marriage had led them to one disaster after another. Right? Nehemiah comes at the end of the Old Testament. If you want to go back and read about the disaster of, 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 of the marriage issue, go back and read the rest of the Bible. So it's not surprising, really, when Nehemiah goes ballistic, doesn't he? He goes kind of ballistic when he found out they had fallen into this sin again. He confronted them and he cursed them, he beat them, he pulled their hair. Um, it's kind of a K-drama, right? Uh, 4th century BC, Israel style. I drama, I suppose. And he finds out that one of the culprits was no less than the grandson of the high priest, right? The senior boss of the temple, the grandson, had married uh, the daughter of Sembalat the Horonite. Now, if you go back and read Nehemiah, Sembalat was like the buddy of Tobiah. Tobiah and Sembalat together had mocked and cursed Israel, right? Another of these pagan enemies of God. This is just too much, isn't it? The desecration. The grandson of the high priest marrying the daughter of Sembalat the Horonite. And so Nehemiah once again chases this fellow out, uh, just like Nehemiah tossed out to buy all his stuff. Uh, it is really a, a full-on K-drama moment. But it's much more than that, of course. This is a servant of God, deeply concerned for the holiness of God's people, expressing holy and righteous wrath. Now, it sounds kind of violent, and maybe you might say Nehemiah went a bit over the top, but apparently the commentaries say that in that time, that was the right way to go about right, showing displeasure. Who knows? Now, as we go through this passage, I want us to just pay attention to Nehemiah for a moment, all right? Because he, he comes, uh, he inserts himself, and he, 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 he speaks in first person a few times, doesn't he? Uh, did you notice the repetition at the end of each failing? So in the three sins or the three desecrations, at the end, you see a statement from Nehemiah. Verse 14, Nehemiah calls out to God, Remember me and my good deeds. And then in verse 22, remember my efforts to keep the people holy and show me favor, right? Spare me. And then in 29, he says, remember them, right? Remember who were those who were truly to be blamed. Now, Nehemiah had tried his best, didn't he? And he really hoped that God would see that and acknowledge that and show him favor and mercy. Right? Poor Nehemiah, he, he's, he's there as the governor. He comes back after a few years and he sees this mess and he feels like he's done his best. And he asks God, remember me and show me grace and mercy. He did what he could. He could hold his head up high. But as for the people, well, they did what they did, Nehemiah says. But Nehemiah was powerless to stop them. Now look for a moment at the final two verses of the whole book. Right? This kind of wraps up right? the whole book 
And this is Nehemiah's summary of what he had achieved. Verse 30 to 31. Thus I, Nehemiah, cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Now, at first, it sounds like a pretty impressive summary of his life's work, but then when you think about it, it sounds rather unimpressive as well, doesn't it? Like, first thing, he cleansed them from everything foreign, but then again, it wasn't a cleansing that was of the heart, was it? He might cleanse all the external stuff. He might have gotten all the debt all out and cleansed down, cleansed down the chambers. But what cleansing had he really brought? He established the temple duties, but he failed to achieve true holiness and the unbroken connection between God and the people that the temple was supposed to signify. He provided wood for sacrifices. Wow, what a grand achievement to put on your CV. Right? I collected all the wood for the sacrifices. It's kind of his last legacy. Now, you see, we hit the climax last week, didn't we? Right? The high point of Nehemiah was last week. This week is just kind of... Even the first seven verses of this section gave us great hope. But then, what a stinker of an ending. What a downer. I'm not sure. If, you, if you're someone who connects when you read the Bible as opposed to kind of just reading through it um, with a kind of neutral mind and heart, but if you were to connect with the story, I hope that you will feel the grief, especially as you understand who all these people are and what they're doing, I'm hoping that we'll feel the grief and the frustration. After a whole Old Testament of constant failing, can we hope for anything better? Right? Is, is spiritual entropy the rule, the law that governs this world and our lives? Is everything doomed to failure? That's a question, really, that Nehemiah leaves us with. And the answer is, and thankfully, is that the Nehemiah is not the last book of the Bible. Because the answer is no, definitely not. It is not doomed to failure. And the answer cannot be found in the people, right? It is not by them working harder, trying harder, and doing better. Right? Nehemiah 13 ends this way it does because it shows us that there is a need for something more, a greater rescue, a greater restoration and rebuilding, a greater renewal that did not come in the time of Nehemiah. They needed God. We need God to do something more. Nehemiah 13 shows the Jews, and it shows us who suffer from spiritual entropy that we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Nehemiah 13, the whole book of Nehemiah, drives us to Jesus. As we all know, I hope we all know, that the gospel is God's solution to the problem of our spiritual entropy. Right? God came to rescue us, right? not from the earthly powers, but from slavery to sin. Jesus destroyed the power that sin has over all of our lives. Jesus came not just to restore and rebuild physical buildings, but to restore and rebuild a people to belong to God, to be His church, to be His city, to be His everlasting kingdom. Jesus came to renew our hearts, our inner beings, our identity. Now, not just an external makeover, but an inner renewal. You see, much more than Nehemiah ever could, Jesus actually does cleanse us from all of our unholiness. 
Much more than Nehemiah ever could, Jesus established and accomplished the work of the priests and the Levites. How? By himself being the great high priest who is able to actually draw us to God and God to us. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice as well, right? Much more than Nehemiah ever could, who just provided the wood for the sacrifices. Jesus himself is the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the full payment and atonement for our sin. And so Jesus is who we must go to first. As we wonder whether we can ever be transformed and changed from our constant seemingly unfailing descent into unholiness and sin and rebellion against God, as we feel that, that, that grief and frustration, it is Jesus whom we must go to first. When your spiritual life is a mess, it's not about working harder and trying to do better. It's about running to Jesus, our Savior. And in Him, as you run to Him, you'll find that in Him, not only do we find salvation, we find real hope for a spiritual renewal, right? A real hope for spiritual renewal. Remember, Jesus far surpasses Nehemiah's best efforts because Jesus is able to deal with our hearts. He powerfully helps and transforms us from the inside. He puts His own Spirit, the Spirit of God, to dwell in us. To dwell in us, to empower us, to bring us spiritual renewal from the inside. So I want to ask you this morning, are you weighed down by sin? As you, as you, walk, as you walk through the last few days, the last few weeks, have you been frustrated that you keep doing what you don't want to do? Your spiritual life seems to be this never-ending cycle of ups and downs. You go well for a day, a week, a month or two, and then suddenly things come crashing down again. The inevitability, it seems, of falling into sin. Now, I have one daughter at home who feels the pain of this most acutely. I won't say which one, but there is one, especially in moments when she's confronted by her sin, uh, with the help, of course, of her parents, who are very willing to help her confront her sins. Uh, she cries, and she cries out uh, in utter frustration that she's trying. <clears throat> Sorry. But then nothing seems to change. We cry with her sometimes. <clears throat> but you know what? She actually has been changing. She's been changing, uh, even though sometimes we might not acknowledge that and sometimes she doesn't see it. But she's been changing because she believes in the gospel. She clings on to her trust in Jesus. And so she has the power of the Spirit within her. And we see that even though she can't see that in those moments of her life, even when we sometimes get so angry with her that we don't see it and she doesn't see it, we do see it when we are not so angry and we realize that the Spirit of God is powerfully working in her life. And so we have this hope and we have this confidence that we will see her keep changing. And she has this hope that we too, as her parents, will keep changing in the way that we don't sinfully raise her up. 
we know that we as a family will definitely overcome our sins together and our failings more and more because we are joined to Christ by faith. I know that's true for all of us. I have absolutely no doubt that there are some of you here, perhaps many of you here, who are feeling very defeated by sin at this moment. Maybe this heat doesn't help. Right? Yesterday, I was just this cranky man, right? And Faith goes, you're hot, aren't you? Can you just go into the aircon? Don't do anything. Just cool down, literally, so that I can cool down right, in my temper. And we face this frustration, don't we, that we can't get over our sins. The guilt of constant regression weighing heavily on us. We feel hopeless and helpless to change. I know I felt this way too many times, far more than I'd like to feel. As your pastor, it feels even worse to feel like I'm always struggling with sin. Reading Nehemiah 13 really should fill us with grief because we feel so often like we're no different. But let me tell you this, and let me tell me this. Reading Nehemiah 13, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ should fill us with joy. Right? You and I are not doomed to spiritual entropy. We're not doomed to failure. It is not inevitable because we have the Spirit of God, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ ruling over us now. And I think many of us already experience this. Right? When we're not down in the dumps and feeling frustrated and hopeless and helpless, I know that when we reflect, we know that we've changed. When we do trust in Jesus, we know we've changed. Well, we might not be where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be either. When we look around to the people around us, we can have the encouragement and the joy of seeing other people change because of the power of the gospel. Right? My daughter has changed. My wife has changed. I have changed. I've seen people change in this church. Sometimes in small, little ways along the way, but sometimes in massive and drastic ways. Why? Because of the power of this gospel and the indwelling spirit. So look at the grace of God in your life and the life of the people around you, and then let it empower you to keep on pressing on, persevering in, in striving for holiness and obedience, for, for the things of God and for, for God's glory and honor, right? to, to strive right? to get rid of that sexual sin that is in your life, that lust, that greed for more, the idolizing of worldly comforts and, and pleasures, to fight against your lovelessness, that you see in your home and in the community, so your unwillingness to forgive, your self-righteousness and your self-serving anger, whatever it is, let us keep on fighting and striving, knowing that we are not, right, we are not doomed to failure. We are no longer under the law of spiritual entropy. We are no longer under the law of sin and death. You get that? Right? In Christ, we have been set free. We have a new power working within us. In Christ, dare I say, it is impossible to fail. Praise be to God. Let's pray. The gracious God, Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that even as we feel the grief and frustration of failure in the pages of Scripture, as we see and experience the, the, the grief of, of failure throughout human history that nothing ever seems to get better, as we experience the grief and frustration of the failures in our own lives, and we wonder, are we doomed to constant failure? Are we, are we, are we doomed to, to gradual decline to sin, no matter how much progress we make? We give you thanks that your word encourages us and reminds us of the power of the gospel 
the cleansing that Jesus brings, the establishment of a reconciled relationship with you that can never be broken, the giving of himself as our ultimate sacrifice that washes away our sins, the goodness of the Lord Jesus and of you, our Father, for giving us your spirit to dwell in us, to empower us and change us and transform us from the inside. We give you great thanks. And we ask you to fill our hearts with hope and joy in knowing this, that we are not doomed to failure. And so we pray that you'll help us to press on. In whatever frustrations and griefs that we feel about our spiritual regress, we pray that you'll help us to make progress, that you will cause that change to happen within us, that you will help us to press on. Please give us the joy of being able to look at the changes that you have already brought in our lives, that you give us the joy and encouragement of seeing the changes that are are being brought about in the lives of the people around us. We give you great thanks that you are a powerful God and you are a good God. And in you, we put our hope and trust. For we pray in Jesus' name.